Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Well, hey there, it's Nico. By now, you probably know who I am, but awkwardly, I know a whole lot less about you. So many of you tell me that you're listening to the show and I really want to know you more. Who are you? Why are you tuning in? What do you want most from Suncast? Let us know by going to mysuncast.com forward slash survey. It takes just five minutes and we'll read every answer. That's mysuncast.com forward slash survey. All right, here's the show. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, welcome back, Solar Warriors, to another Suncast episode with a clean energy thought leader that I thought you should get to know better. I'm honored that you're taking time out of your very busy week to spend with us. And thank you for giving us, yet again, the only non-renewable resource you possess, and that is your time. I hope that we will make good use of it this week. Every now and then I get a chance to host a guest who has as equal or greater a platform as we do and presence in uh, the public from a thought leadership and publishing and even video generation perspective. Today, Mr. Peter Kelly Detweiler of Northbridge Energy Partners is joining us on the show. And if you're not familiar, you really should go check out PKD as he's otherwise known. PKD's videos on LinkedIn or YouTube. I came to know PKD through our mutual friend, Jake Rosemarin, who had both of us participate in the Midwest Solar Expo. Many of you probably know PKD from his years and years of training and service after his uh, very critical time and role at Constellation Energy, which we talk a fair bit about. PKD is a respected author, not only of articles on websites like Forbes, but of a forthcoming book that I will for sure want to check out, and I'm sure you will too. This is a fun and, as you might expect, wide-ranging conversation with PKD about his career and the last portion of it, the last seven, 10 years, where he has really dived into being a change maker, a thought leader, setting up himself on a platform uh, that he created to train and teach and educate others. One of the things that he is truly, truly passionate about. If you love this episode, then you're going to want to check out the nearly 300 other founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, I would encourage you to go ahead and sign up to attend next week's career summit. It's geared specifically to help you get going on your journey to finding the perfect role in clean energy. Or if you're that hiring manager that's trying to figure out exactly how to apply a diversity inclusion lens to the overall hiring practice of your business, you'll want to tune in as well. Again, that's events.mysuncast.com. Look forward to seeing you at our first ever career summit. Thanks again to Lightsource BP for helping bring that to you. And I hope that you will take advantage of it. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, I know that many of you are excited to have a chance to have PKD and I on the same podcast. A lot of you are followers of his. We're excited to have him here on Suncast today, as I mentioned. And for those who are unfamiliar, PKD, uh, also known as Peter Kelly Detweiler, has three decades of experience in the electric energy arena with much of his career in various areas of the competitive power markets. We'll speak about that today. And he's become well-known for his advocacy and education around helping others understand not only how the industry works, but where it's going. He's a communicator focused on the rapid pace of transformation to a sustainable economy. You may have read some of his more than 350 articles on Forbes.com, or surely you have seen him in his informative and educational and often very witty and uh, fun to watch videos on LinkedIn or YouTube. Today, we're going to dive into the mind of a fellow creator. Peter, welcome to Suncast. Thank you, Nico. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on board. 
Hey, man, my pleasure. And I want to give a nod to our mutual friend, Jake Rosemarin at Antenna Group, who helped us make the connection. For some reason, uh, we have both been in the industry for a, a long time and we've never had it. We had never had a chance to really meet before kind of the Midwest Solar Expo timeframe. So yet another of the, for me, fantastic synergies or fun things that have popped up from the COVID pandemic. Before we dive into the whole backstory, how has the time from March to now, we're now midsummer, affected, if any, your business or how has it improved or changed the way that you think about the world we're operating in? Yeah, I mean, the first thing in the business that scared the bejesus out of me because all my speaking engagements went to zilch, right? (laughs) As the world started to figure out how to move to other platforms. But some really interesting things happened, Nico. For example, there was one training I was going to do with the utility, and they hadn't been able to line up a space for all the people to be in because there were going to be 80 attendees. And for six months, they couldn't line up a space within the corporation. And then at COVID, within a month, just everybody called in. And what I found was, yeah, it's a 12-hour session, or that one was eight, and I'm speaking to the screen all day. But if you take enough breaks and you, and you tell stories and so on, and you remember there's somebody on the other side with their cat on their lap or whatever, it actually worked better than I thought. The thing I find fascinating too, though, is the COVID thing is kind of allowing humanity to enter into business. Like I moderated a panel the other day, sustainability panel, like the chief sustainability officers from San Antonio, Austin, Houston, and Dallas. One of them was speaking, and all of a sudden, a cat jumped up on the railing behind him. And I could see everybody on the panel was watching the cat. That's awesome. The cat jumped on the bed. Then it jumped, came over next to his lap. And he finally noticed it. He's like, oh, there's my cat. And we're all like in our heads. Yeah, we've been watching the cat for the last 60 seconds. So then the cat jumps over. And I said, oh, the cat is bringing me over to Jack. I need to talk to Jack about X. I figured I might as well weave it into the story. That is so good. I mean, the thing that's interesting about COVID is we all have human beings, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and adaptation. And we are adapting. And the clean energy economy is barreling ahead and figuring out some ways to do things it hadn't before. So it's, it's interesting watching the sustainability of sustainability, if you will. It's really interesting as well that it catapulted the, the dialogue, the narrative, if you will, on a global level around how much travel we collectively do just to meet and see one another, not only the daily commute, but the countless hours on airplanes, obviously the carbon footprint embedded in each and every conference we attend. It's stunning. I, like you, the week that, whatever, March, the week of March 23rd, when everything started to really sort of fall apart and in terms of the wheels falling off and all the events were shutting down, nobody knew what to do. Uh, it was going to be the first time I was going to travel since October, and I had everything lined up. I was going to D.C. and then uh, and then Pittsburgh, and I had a bunch of events and speaking engagements as well. So it has forced those of us who uh, make a living at now as communicators and helping others communicate their story really adapt to the medium that I would argue we've been telling folks we wanted to use for a long time, Zoom I think the online learning space in general, as well as those who are creating content and creating signposts, books, et cetera, to guide folks through this period, that is such a thriving market right now. You said something on our very first phone call that captivated me. It just captured my attention. You said that you're working to change folks' mental map about how they look at the way that events in our industry are unfolding. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, so the mental map is all about understanding that the future is coming at us faster than we think. Uh, I mean, yes, but the time frame is still the same. But what I mean is, for example, two or three years ago, Nico, you could have spent an hour, an hour and a half every day reading the critical stories in the industry that matter. Now it takes two to three, maybe three to four, um, because there are so many things happening at the same time, whether it's in the world of finance where, you know, Morgan Stanley the other day says, we're going to start to track the carbon implications of our investments in lending. And then Buttonfall writes off a billion dollars in coal. And then BlackRock says, oh, we targeted X number of companies that were voting against their boards because they're not doing, you know, the right things by climate change. So when I say mental map, it's this understanding that, first of all, we're up against this implacable thing called atmospheric chemistry. You can't argue with it because it doesn't care just like COVID doesn't. And then understanding that the pace of change is happening faster and faster. So you got to think in a more agile fashion. There's a really cool book 
called Deep Survival, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why, about people who end up in extremists. And I thought it was a survival book. Then I realized decades later, it's a business book. And there are two stories in there, one about a guy who's in a shipwreck, you know, and, and, he, and he accommodates so well floating across the ocean for months that by the time rescuers come to him and there's a school of fish all around him, he's like, you guys go get the fish you came out here for. I'm still going to be here. And then they brought him in and he was fine. But the one that really struck me was a plane that exploded over the Amazon in Brazil, where I think 14 people survived. They came down through the canopy of the jungle in their seats. And 13 of them were adults. And they all succumbed to groupthink. The world hasn't changed. People are going to come find us. So, And they couldn't light a fire that anyone could see through the canopy if they could light a fire at all. Meanwhile, this 12-year-old girl, she might have been 14, she lands miles away, hurts her ankle, and she's all alone. And she's like, well, if I don't do something, I'm toast. My father taught me water flows downhill and eventually civilization meets water. So for a dozen days, she dragged herself to the stream, to the creek, to the river, and eventually collapsed in a hunter's hut. And they found her because she redrew her mental map to the new world she was in. We all need to be doing more and more and more of that. Some people are already building it, like the CEO of 8-Minute Energy, Elon Musk. They're building that map. We better understand what it means for us. Yeah, I love that. Uh, The idea to navigate the situation with a new mental map is something that it's separating the market right now. And we, as I've heard you say before, are in a business of reappraising with the whole business that we're in with a whole new set of facts about how we operate. You have been in the business of studying facts, addressing customer needs, and evaluating the wholesale markets for three decades. How did you get into the power business generally? And when did you first get that taste that renewable energy was the new flavor, sort of the way that the energy markets were going to migrate. I'm curious to explore how you began to position yourself in that. Yeah. So since I was little, I've always been sort of focused on, you know, sustainability. I remember when I was a kid, you know, seeing cars going into Boston with the emissions and thinking, it's not really possible this can go on forever, is it? You know, without any scientific background, but just understanding the finitude that we would run up against with certain behaviors. But I was working in in Africa in in, uh, development economics. So I spent six months in Mogadishu and Somalia in the Ministry of Finance in the mid-80s. And then my wife and I got married uh, in 88. And a month later, we were in, you know, Ghana. So it was one of these here today, Ghana tomorrow type of stupid jokes, right? But then um, we had a difficult pregnancy. She bore more of the, the challenge of that than I did. But we came back to the States and a friend of mine was working in electricity. And I had been still focused on sustainability, even when I was over in Africa, uh, and the way led on to way where I ended up starting at this uh, beginning with a startup that was actually opposing renewables because we were working for the Cree Indians in Northern Quebec and Hydro-Quebec was running bulldozers on their land without their say-so. So I sort of fell into completely serendipitously the industry where I worked for a genius, but he didn't like to write. So my job was to take all of his thoughts and turn them into testimony or other material. And then, you know, that after five years, we, we won all of our cases. We worked for Aboriginal groups all over Canada. So then I spent two years in Chile working on efficiency down there from 95 to 97. By then I knew the industry fairly well. And then in 97, I came back and that's when competitive power markets were started. So also just serendipitously that summer, I ended up rendering the first invoice ever in the history of competitive power markets. I carry that three and a half inch floppy disk with me. Um, that was my going away party after 15 years. You know, some people get a ring or a watch. I got this cracked three and a half inch floppy disk and I treasure it because it's emblematic of what we had to do to start a whole industry. Then, you know, I did demand response to Constellation also for like six years, got that built from pretty much scratch to 850 megawatts of dispatchable load where we could turn stuff off with a phone call, a text, um, an email. We bought Sea Power, doubled the size. And then in 2012, uh, that's when we were bought by Exelon and they were looking for people who wanted severance. And I wanted to do the next thing. By then, it was really clear this constellation of events was happening. New technologies were coming in. EVs were eh, not really there. Batteries were not there, but solar and wind already were starting. And you could see the forces were massing to drive some kind of a change. And certainly the carbon dynamic was already well known. So I thought, it's time for me to jump into I don't know what. And that first year, I had almost a year's worth of severance paid for by Constellation. So 
I did two things. I got up every morning like a job and I went and rowed five to 10 miles on the local bay and chased right bass out of my rowing shell. And then I'd come home and I would interview CEOs, Ikea, why was he in the climate march, the heads of some of the storage companies and so on. I think the first year I wrote 150 posts for Forbes in a, in a sort of a frantic attempt to begin to pull the pieces together and figure out how to create some kind of synthesis, some synthesize some kind of a thesis of where this is all headed and how everything tied together so that if you look at this like a loom, you pull on this piece of yarn over here and something over here moves that you didn't even see. I have been intrigued by how you came out of this deep cultural and corporate experience, first advocating on behalf of those without a voice or those who who needed more professional experience, even the genius CEO who needed your voice as a writer to communicate. You spent decades building this, uh, this voice, building this ability to write. Did it seem natural to you that turning to interviews at a time, 2012, when frankly, like podcasts weren't really a, a huge thing and writing for major journals like Forbes weren't, weren't exactly an open door. I mean, HuffPo was starting to gain momentum. How did it occur to you that this is where, or maybe even why, that this is where you wanted to turn your focus? I would say like many things in my life, I kind of walk into them backwards. I wanted to know more. And so I was curious, but it didn't occur to me for a couple of years, that really what was happening was I was turning into a storyteller of the industry. We are driven by the narratives we tell ourselves. The power of the story, I mean, whether it's Joseph Campbell in mythology or whatever, I mean, you see it every day with the podium at the White House and then other, it's all about positioning the narrative. That's what really drives society and what we identify with or not. So it wasn't one of these intentional things. It was kind of like when I became an Eagle Scout. I was never intending to become an Eagle Scout. And one day I looked at all my merit badges and I was like, geez, if I only do one project and get three merit badges, I'm going to be an Eagle Scout, right? It wasn't like I had this grand plan. That's the same sort of thing here. So, you know, all of a sudden you wake up and you find yourself almost there and go, all right, if I do this, 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 and this, then maybe the pieces will fall into place. And this industry is one that needs storytellers, which is why... For me, it seems so strange that we never cross paths because unwittingly, I I also have fallen into this role of being an industry storyteller. You know, I find that your your take, your angle in particular on the way that leaders are thinking about the industry or the way that others should be thinking about the industry is is a really intriguing one. Uh, It's very informative and lots of folks I know greatly respect not only your ability to weave a narrative, but your consistent ability to be ahead of others in the thinking. I wonder if there are specific tools that you developed, not only at your time in Constellation, but even before working in Africa and in Canada, that help you think ahead of the curve. And how might one listening to this extrapolate their own sense of ability to forecast and think beyond and around the corner? I mean, we often ask, I ask on the podcast, what corners are you looking around? But more important question might be similar to one we'd ask a college student, how do you learn how to make decisions or how to think? But in your case, how might one begin to curate that type of forecasting internally, right? That type of model. That's an interesting question. I I sometimes think it's really helpful. The same way you're in your place in life right now, right? I'm almost 60. And I go, okay, looking back over the last 20 years, what was inevitable and what wasn't? And so I sometimes say to myself, all right, position myself in 2040 and look back to 2020. What happened over the last 20 years and why was it inevitable or why wasn't it? And so the first piece of that is to do what, you know, Peter Schwartz did when he was forecasting for Shell Oil and and, and great book, The Art of the Long View, which is conjecture about what the possible outcomes might be. So, you know, maybe five years ago, it was kind of clear that batteries were entering the scene. It was also clear that, you know, solar, for example, had a predictable curve except for sunlight, but we were going to need to be able to move that power someplace or other. So I started thinking, well, what if you took batteries and solar and put them together? Now, not I didn't spreadsheet this. It's much more, you know, conceptual. Or what if you took a, a school bus 
and you know a hurricane's coming in Florida and it's an electric bus and you've got 350 kilowatt hours. What could you do with that thing? Well, if I see the low coming off the Azores or whatever, charge that sucker and get ready to bring it to police, fire, or shelter. Part of it's just thing like, okay, where might the possible arc of all these technologies and investment investments and everything go. And then once I figure out what those end states might look like, then I work backwards and say, all right, what milestones that we are going to pass tell us we're arcing in this direction versus that direction. Then it becomes pretty clear that the outcomes are in some cases, unless you have a black swan event like a COVID, but things start to feel a little bit more foreordained. I don't get a, this is going to sound really immodest. The things that are happening today do not surprise me because to me, they were inevitable again, because of the implacability of atmospheric chemistry. There's no way around that. You know, there's often times we as, as writers and communicators will use things like what you just did, implacability of atmospheric chemistry. And sometimes we can leave the audience wondering what was just said. Do you feel like that's something you do intentionally as a storyteller to lead someone into the next piece of the narrative? I feel like unwittingly, Part of our interview is moving into the art of storytelling and energy. <laughs> Definitely. And people, in fact, people tell me that I bury the lead all the time. For me, it's boring when I read a story where they tell me what I'm supposed to know in the first two paragraphs or first sentence. That just bores me. Then I don't even have to read the rest of the piece. I'd much rather lay down those breadcrumbs, right? Hansel and Gretel style. And so, you know, we tease a little bit here and there so that the reader's going, where's he going with this? I'm intrigued enough that I want to keep going to find out where this is all headed. And so, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely some thought behind that. Where did you learn the idea of burying the lead? Is that something that became apparent to you during your time at Forbes? Is it a part of the craft that you've been honing over years? Um, I guess I learned it when people told me you're burying the lead. And I'm like, good, because I don't want it any other way. Like, again, it wasn't, it just was sort of native to me in terms of when you watch a really good TV show, a whodunit, for example, they never tell you whodunit. They have the body there with the, you know, X and Y and Z, and then they lead you into the story. And so for me, that's sort of a native way to think about how you create that curiosity. Hey there, commercial solar warriors. If you listen to this show, then by now you're very familiar that Extensible Energy's DemandX load flexibility software helps close more deals and faster by shifting to lower time of use rates and saving your customers 30% annual demand charges, all at a tenth of the cost of battery-based solutions. But did you know that Extensible also has a new solar partner loyalty incentive program that rewards your sales team with a generous sales bonus? Well, for now, until the end of the year, when you complete just three successful DemandX installs, your sales team member will get a $2,500 check or vacation voucher for when we all do get to travel again. This program also applies to your past customers who already have solar and could benefit from DemandX extra savings. Just contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast to become a DemandX reseller and get all the program details and benefits for yourself. Again, that's extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. The Suncast Career Summit kicks off on September 1st as a first-of-its-kind virtual event exclusively focused on promoting diversity and inclusiveness in the clean energy industry. This event is for job seekers and hiring managers alike. You can engage with industry leaders, attend workshops tailored to practical advice, Learn specific strategies in group and one-to-one settings and develop a game plan for success. Learn more and recommend a friend at suncastcareersummit.com. This episode is also brought to you by Adani Solar USA, a fully integrated renewables company from solar sale and module manufacturing to project ownership and operation. Adani has an impressive operating and contracted pipeline of over 14 gigawatts of solar energy projects and recently received the largest solar award ever of eight gigawatts. It's mind-blowing. And it includes a single site project of two gigawatts, which itself is tied for the world's largest. No one knows mega scale projects like Adani. If you'd like to work with Adani, go to mysuncast.com forward slash Adani, A-D-A-N-I, and fill out the information request form and we'll put you in touch with their local team. You know, I feel like there are a lot of tools that we can use. And this idea of creating a narrative for me is such an important one. It's one that I spend a lot of time with my clients talking through when 
they're looking at their product market fit or just simply their messaging or rebrand. And I learned something that I'd l- I'm going to share a link here in the chat with you real quick of this video by Jack Conti. For those unfamiliar, uh, I've shared lots of videos of Jack because he's one of my uh, modern day sort of, uh, I won't call him hero, but like a uh, guy that I, what do you call it when you admire someone? Anyway, I admire his work. He's just a prolific creator. He created Patreon, uh, which is a great platform that we use. He profiled this creator on YouTube named L Mills. Some may be familiar with her. But she's a super prolific creator who's won a bunch of YouTube awards and has millions of followers. And she walks through how she thinks about the setup of her video and shows like the notes, the reams of notes she takes before making any video, right? And she makes multiple videos a week. The YouTube is called YL Mills is so special. He literally like takes the time to go fly to her and sit down and learn how she tells a story. Part of what I loved from that was he maps out the arc of the story. And the setup is so important because you can learn a lot from a movie, right? And back to your your analogy that we're, we're in a movie and this movie is accelerating in real time. We've seen the foreshadowing of what's to come, but we are the actors in this movie. We get to be the protagonist. We get to help move the story along. I find I'm you know, super intrigued by folks like you, uh, my new friend, Les, uh, who's been doing a lot of videos on YouTube or on LinkedIn, another friend, Catherine, who are taking the time to think about how to tell our industry story. And I just wanted to pull a bit of that into this conversation because I find that a lot of people are perplexed. They may even say to you like, God, Peter, I see you everywhere, right? Like you hear people say that all the time. They're like, oh, you're everywhere. And what they mean is you show up in my LinkedIn feed more than others perhaps, or um, I see you moderating. And also I see your LinkedIn videos. And I think behind the, behind the scenes, they're asking the question, how do you do it, right? How do you do it? Or maybe even why do you do it? So I wanted to take a moment and dig into sort of the underlayer here of, Peter, you've been in this industry for three decades. You're clearly a thought leader long before I thought to become sort of a voice in the industry. Why do you do it? You had a wonderful career. You've transitioned into consulting. Where do you see this going? At its underlying fundamental level, this is really about the biggest challenge humanity's ever faced, which is, you know, the climate one, the carbon one. So I started to think, like, where can I have the most impact? I've led 35 people. I love leadership. I love being able to motivate people and create a team and focus on something. But I thought, you know, apparently what I, people tell me what I do really well is to take complex stuff and simplify it. And so, so the thinking, you know, in my head is if I can change the way people think about this or give them a contextual understanding and move them along the process so they're better equipped to figure out why they're doing what they're doing or what they need to do next. Maybe that's the multiplier effect that allows me to have the greatest impact in the world. Because at the end of the day, the narrative we tell ourselves, again, that is the, the perhaps the most critical thing that drives everything. So I thought, all right, let's see if I can contribute to that. So I understand that part of the work that you do is what we call, what we'd say public facing. You do trainings for corporations, you continue to write and you're a thought leader in places like LinkedIn. Where for you does the rubber meet the road? How are you taking this um, you know, decades long understanding of the public markets, of the public power markets and turning it into a path others can follow or a way that you help individuals or corporations move forward? Among other things, I, I do have my consulting assignments. So last month I delivered 60 pages worth of two reports, one on grid security, everything ranging from cyber to physical attacks and so on. And then something else was market sizing to help a company that's seeking, you know, multiple millions of dollars to expand in the, and it's a sustainable company in the space. What I do though is every time someone asks me if I will do X or Y or Z, I look at it and say, is it something I know so much about? I'm not really interested because it, unless I can just banging out fast. And then there's some money, obviously. But for the most part, I look for an adjacency that scares me that I know something about, but not everything about. And so those are the assignments I love where in my heart, in my stomach, I'm like, oof. But then having the confidence to know that within a month or 45 days, I'll know this thing pretty well, enough to write a white paper that will be accepted in the industry. That's fun for me. I love being scared a little bit. You know, one of the things that I see in folks like yourself who have chosen to not 
pull back into sort of the comfortable world where you know you could contribute, which is in the corporate life. You, you could easily go get a job in a corporate setting uh, anytime over the last eight years that you've been doing what essentially is freelance consulting. You know, you do grown-up freelancing, right? In the form of consulting someone, someone says, I need this ad hoc thing, or I need to solve this one problem. Uh, and you go solve it. And many of us have done that. Uh, I think in our industry, because of the solar coaster, as it were, uh, there's a tendency that we have this consulting carousel. Often you'll see someone is between jobs. And so like su- the, the, such and such consultancy pops up on their, on their uh, resume or their LinkedIn. The thing that you thought was going to be harder about being independent from a company, but that either came naturally for you or surprisingly wasn't as difficult as you thought it would be. So the first part is, I mean, the hard part is you're always chasing the next thing that, you know, so there's going to be an ACH transfer to your account or a check or something, right? I mean, you're only as good as your last assignment. Yeah. I found that I actually enjoy the process. It's like fishing or something. Like now, once you catch that thing, you, now you've got to essentially fillet it and, you know, put it in the, you got to do the work, right? But that's kind of fun putting, for me, I didn't know I would like this as much. And I try not to think of it as a hustle. I mean, yes, there's always, you're always trying to find the next thing. I try and think about it as a creation of possibility. Not what can you do for me, but what might we be able to do for each other to sort of, to sort of think about it from an abundance perspective? Oh, and if you don't get the deal, you can't dwell on it. You just move on to the next one, right? Because that's, that's just the way of it. Um, but I now have a fair amount of faith that that's going to work out. And then the other piece of it is that I must say, I don't, you know, every year at the end of the year, I do my review. I go into my boss's room, which is my office, and I bring in my accountant, who's me, and I bring in, you know, my PR guy, who's me, and we sit down and say, how did you do this year? And I always give myself on a scale of one to five a one, right? And then I hold out my hand for the bonus, and it's always the same. <laughs> right? I mean, I love the review process, but the compensation sucks. Oh, man, I love it. In the old world, though, you know, when you, you get your quarterly review or your annual re- review, I will say in my whole life, I was either overcompensated or undercompensated, sometimes vastly, sometimes vastly overcompensated for the value I created in that particular year. And I much more enjoy the process of here's the deliverable I'm promising to you for X price. Do you like it or not? And if you don't, tell me why and let me go see if I can fix it. I love that. I can so resonate with that. I can so resonate with that. It's become something that I've learned to thrive on as well. You know, I've been in biz dev and and sales and marketing my entire career for the most part. So that hunt came quite naturally to me. You know, one of the things that's easy in the corporate environment is it's the division of labor is such that it's not hard to find a place where you're throwing the boat, the fish in the boat. Somebody else is scaling and cleaning and delivering to market, right? And so building that capacity internally for to do multiple, like you said, to be the accountant, to be the various roles or to organize yourself enough to divide those roles and find either freelance uh, ad hoc or sort of internal team members, like actually building a company on your own is itself a whole other challenge. I find that mo- many folks are daunted Uh, or they find daunting the problem of how do I take this from feeling like I'm freelancing to feeling like it's something like regular work and something my family can rely on. That's about mission, right? For me anyway. And the other thing, I do not miss the corporate BS at all. So we were trying to build something at one point within one of the companies I worked in with partners, you know, business partners. So legal comes to me one day and says, you can't call them partners. I'm like, why not? We're building a partnership. They said, because it has specific legal implications. Oh, okay, I get that. So what should I call them? And they said, well, we're not going to tell you what you can call them. We're just going to tell you, you can't call them partners. I'm like, okay, cool. Then I'm going to call them SOs. And they look at me sort of in the way, and I said, yeah, significant others. If it's not a partner, I don't know what else you call it. And they're like, just stop it, Pete, just stop it. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, I was, it, it teased up a question I was going to ask you. Jeff Bezos says that when he built Amazon, he didn't look at what's going to change. He looked at the things that are not going to change as the fundamental cornerstones that he built his company around. People are never going to stop reading or we presume they won't. So delivery of that content is itself a medium uh, and, it's, and it's a business that will thrive for generations from Papyrus to uh, Kindle. As you've been in this industry for a while, and you've seen a number of business models and methods adapt to the changing times. 
Is there something about our business that you feel is not going to change? Something about our business in terms of sustainability? Uh, well, I, I love that you bring it back often to sustainability. I'm, I'm thinking at the meta level of the energy business broadly, rather than sustainability, within the context or the, or the container of how climate change perhaps is forcing lots of change in the industry. Okay, so I personally believe that ultimately everything will change in the sense, but what won't is we'll want services. But the way we package it right now is, is to my mind, really stupid. Like, first of all, we sell energy to people within the language of kilowatt, kilowatt hour, demand charge, and all that. We expect everybody to adopt the language and the logic of the industry rather than saying, you're consumers, you want X. And Amory Lovins from Rocky Mountain used to famously say it's the cold beer. My belief is within a decade, we will be selling cold beer. Because if you think about it, you take someone who understands the logic of the market and then combine it with someone who understands the logic of what technology can do and say, I'll sell you, Nico, a 10-year contract where I'm going to guarantee you in your building, your office building, 68 to 71 degrees temperature, and your elevator is going to work, and you're going to have this much lighting in the hallways, the bathroom, the offices, et cetera. Leave it to me to figure out the technology and what other things I am going to do, whether I put batteries in, whether I do LED lighting, whether I swap those lights out in five years because the balance sheet tells me, you know, my spreadsheet that that makes sense. Then all the logic is on one side of the equation. You no longer have this sort of split infinitive of intelligence. You don't have a disintegrated model. So at some point, to me, it goes right back to the 1890s in France when they sold chauffage. They, they didn't sell the coal and they didn't sell the furnace. They sold heat. And it's so logical to me we're going to move in that direction that somebody says, you know, it could be Sunrun saying, I'm going to give you energy. I'm going to give you solar on the rooftop. I'm going to put batteries in. I'm going to integrate that with your car. And you don't have to worry. In fact, Sunland is almost doing this on Australia right now. For 3,000 new homes, you pay $13,000 up front U.S. They put 25 panels on your roof. They put a 10 kilowatt hour battery in your laundry room. And then you pay them $40 a month. They marshal all those resources, sell services back to the grid, make whatever they make. And you never see an electricity bill because they've taken care of all that. Wow. You said Sonnen is doing that? Sonnen is doing that. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. I'd love, if you could send me a link to that, I'd love to read yeah, a little a bit more. Yeah, there's a Forbes piece on that. Ah, I bet, <laughs> I bet there is. I presume someone perhaps on this interview may have written that Forbes piece. I know someone who, who's very familiar with it. Yeah. Oh, okay, per- perfect. Well, we'll yeah. uh, I would love to link to it in the in the show notes. I think one thing is what you just pointed out. We do as an industry get, I'll, I'll say like ethnocentric, right? We think a lot about what happens inside of our borders. And even borders being what happens just within CalISO or just within PJM. And we get territorial, but another listener, Adam, out in California, runs an amazing company that is bringing an Australian technology that already has embedded in it a lot of the abilities or maybe all of the capabilities to do bidirectional, transactional energy, right? And also, by the way, monitors uh, your solar array and checks the health of your batteries and can plug into other things like your nest and things, stuff like that, right? So Australia is one of those markets where I feel we just don't explore enough. I'm, I'm going to be looking more at how do I bring things happening in Australia sort of across the pond, not only to America, uh, to the US, but to Latin America, because we, we need to be learning from these markets. <laughs> Australia is quite literally an island that is disrupting itself constantly. Right. They're thinking yeah. about how to, how, what does sustainability look like for several, you know, tens of millions of people locked on this piece of land? Yeah. I mean, New South Wales just had this like very aggressive policy they announced for sustainability just a couple of weeks ago. You know, one, one thing too is you'd asked before and it just sort of popped into my head doing that work in Africa and other places. Mm. At first, I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I was like that ignorant person that says, oh, I'm going to bring these solutions to the space. And then you're there for three minutes and you're like, no, the space is the space, the culture is the culture. Every technological problem that you're trying to solve is really a cultural problem at its heart. Again, it gets back to the story, then you're going to fail. That's a critical piece of things I, I kind of forgot to mention before. Indeed, every technology problem is really a cultural problem. I've been doing a lot of thinking around how our industry is in many ways a tech company industry. It's a tech industry. We're moving towards blockchain. I mean, we're using blockchain to optimize the way that oil platforms work in uh, the Baltic Sea, right? Like there are 
lots of technological innovations happening throughout the energy business. And yet we still have a real hard time attracting talent that would otherwise go to Facebook and create the next meme or, or manage yeah. the next fancy product at Google. How do you think we can improve the narrative that would be attractive to the current generation, not the next generation, the current generation of 20 and 30 something brilliant computer scientists and marketers to join the climate action movement that we are, we are all a part of. You know, if I were somebody like EEI, for example, Edison Electric, I'd have this campaign called The Electron is Cool, right? <laughs> I would talk about how elegant the electron is and what it does for us, from everything from IT to, you know, more basic things. And, and increasingly, it is going to be, and just like we have a central nervous system, we're building out globally a central nervous system right now with our data centers all over the world. That would be our cerebrum. And then sensors everywhere are our skin right? They were pulling all this data back, whether it's from your Tesla or whether it's from anything else. That's what's going on right now. But ultimately, the thing that keeps that going, just like in our own bodies where our electric system keeps our heart pumping and so on, it is that power grid or what the grid evolves into, some kind of an electrical ecosystem that supports everything. And so if you look at it that way, and this is the thing, when I first got into this, I thought electricity was kind of boring and I wasn't going to be in this space for long. And now I'm enamored of it because it touches every aspect of humanity. Like you name anything people do and I can say how electricity is tied to it. Anything, right? Because it is. And so getting people to understand that joining this thing is really joining humanity and trying to figure out how to move us along to the next place in our evolution, and that this is inextricably linked with our evolution, there's nothing cooler than electricity in that sense. But we've got to make it mm, sexy, I guess is the phrase, you know, desirable, whatever it is. Well, do you have any advice for folks who are having this epiphany and they're trying to find a role in the industry? I mean, sure, you get hit up by people all the time saying, I want to move, I want to, I'm trying to get a job. Yeah, the first thing I ask them is what they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. because then once, once you identify the passion, then you can figure out how you plug them into that ecosystem, right? And sometimes it's, oh, you got to suffer and, and you know, be an intern with a company because it takes a while to learn the language. And let's face it, this industry is super complex and it's got all kinds of nomenclature and so on. It's not the sort of thing you learn right away. And I sometimes am shocked that I'm, a, that I'm considered a thought leader in this industry because I never thought that's what would happen to me in this incarnation of my life, you know? But, um, but yeah, it starts with the passion. Like, what do you want to do and the why? Like, really, the why at the end of the day drives all of it. And so if you as an individual can really and truly identify with the fundament of what it is driving you, then it's easier for me to, sell, to tell you, oh, here's where I think you could have some interesting conversations or where I think you might, to use the phrase, plug into this space. Do you see particular roles more in need or more common than others right now? Like, where, where do you see folks being able to, quote, plug in, regardless of the yeah. why or the how? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's obviously the, the STEM folks, right? IT is huge because there's a lot of work that has to be done, everything from cybersecurity to, you know, if you do presuppose a world, which I do, where a utility has 20 million smart devices that know what's going on on the grid and respond accordingly, and there's this massively active, transactive ecosystem, someone's going to have to figure out the architecture and how to safeguard all that. But then, you know, like if you look at somebody like one of my heroes in the space is Green Mountain Power CEO who just stepped down and drew Mary Powell. Why? She's an artist. She came to the space from art. And as such, she didn't think about this I mean, there's a need for engineers, don't get me wrong, but if everybody's an engineer in the space, it's a pretty boring zoo, right? And so having a multiplicity of viewpoints in that space, whether it's a chalk artist who explains this to people or, you know, different ways of doing things, I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done to sort of refract out the understanding of what's going on here so that different portions of society can understand and appreciate it and want to be involved in it. I see this in my son, who's very much an artist. And I love that you just, she, Mary is one of my true uh, heroes. I admire her a ton. And what she's done in Green Mountain Power is just so impressive. Really eager to see sort of what comes next for her. But I see in my son all the time. He's nine. And he is more than 
more than just about any other child I know, he's building within himself and constantly struggling with a resilience against failure because Mm. he has this vision of the world that he so desperately wants his hands to be able to bring to life on a piece of paper. And I watch the frustration in him. And in many ways, it mirrors the 20s and 30s of many of our careers. And I often, you know, counsel folks to say, look, what you see on the paper right now is not the picture. You know, a lot of folks just, they feel like my son after his first version uh, of that painting, like, like they're, they're not able to do it or they're not getting it right. And there's so many people I find that came out of college and they just took that easy job at tech company A, you know, Slack, Google, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And they feel pigeonholed and they're a part of a generation in particular that values meaning over, yeah. over yeah. matter. Yeah. And there are very few opportunities right now in the next 10 years to make as much of a difference on the whole of humanity as this one. Yeah. But you know, the other thing is, right. What I find, I mean, I feel joy in my job right now, even when I screw up and I had a masterful screw up last week that I had to apologize (laughs) to somebody for, right. I completely messed something up. You know, I'm almost 60. And one of the things you get older, one of the compensations for you get a bit slower in your rowboat and, you know, you don't run anymore and stuff like that is you get more reflective. You understand joy more and you understand that the process is as valuable as anything. So your son's process of, you know, at some point, I hope he gets to the point where he appreciates what he does, even if he doesn't always love the outcome. Sometimes when I write a Forbes piece, Nico, I see this thing come up on the screen and I'm like, where the hell is that even coming from? It's almost like I'm watching my own brain figure something out and I'm not even there. And that's a delightful. Sometimes I'm like, what the hell are you doing? But other times it's like, whoa, how do you take this interview and turn it into this narrative? Like what just happened in that process? And I don't even know sometimes, but I love watching the process and just taking joy in that. We need to do that. All of us need to do that more. Completely. Yeah, completely agree. We mentioned Mary. I wonder who else you admire and draw lessons from for yourself. I think Apollo Gold Williams is great at CPS in San Antonio. Again, somebody who came up, she'll say, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. In fact, I'm interviewing her for the book this week. And I interviewed Mary last week. She, you know, accountant, right? Different type of thinker. Musk, I admire because if you ask, you know, think outside the box, he's like, I don't see a box right now. He's a little bit hard on the people that he works for. And sometimes geniuses are. I don't admire that aspect of him. I find, though, that at the end of the day, oh, somebody like 8-Minute Energy is Thomas Buchenbach, who I also got a chance to talk to, who's just like conceptualizing the whole energy world. The way we think about energy centers now sitting on type of hydrocarbons, he's like, no, the energy centers of the world in the future are going to be where the free fuel shows up, where the wind is, where the sun is, and then we'll figure out how to move it, whether with transmission or in the form of hydrogen or something. Like, he doesn't recognize a box either. Those kinds of people I admire, especially the ones who can do it with some compassion at the same time and relatively little ego. Well, you mentioned a book in the, in the outset that made an impact for you. And I know that you often put the cover of, uh, of that book, Deep Survival, as the final slide in your presentations. I wonder, are there other authors or books that have inspired you and, and, and in, so, in so doing that you gift or, or give uh, or recommend often to others? What books would you curate for others? Gosh, you know, I, I would have to say my answer to that is um, I haven't read a book in five years or maybe one or two because I don't have time anymore. I'm so busy reading every single day. That's my biggest lament is that I don't have time to sort of right now to take the downtime. And I don't watch a lot of TV either. I don't even, I don't feel like I need to relax my brain in some senses. So, you know, I'm, I'm coming up short on that answer just because I haven't read something where I'm like, oh, this rocks the free world because I just haven't read any books. I totally identify with that. Folks ask me what podcasts I listen to and it's almost laughable. I, I, I listen to audiobooks right now in my spare time. And I listen to a very, very few select podcasts and only in bits and spurts. To that end, you're the kind of person I know, as you just said, is a voracious reader of content for our industry because it serves not only your clients, but your, your mission. Again, maybe tying even back to folks who are trying to explore this industry. Where do you get the bulk of your information? How do you curate 
the influx of that information on a daily basis so that you can contain it. Okay, so the first thing comes in at 1.30 in the morning. I never read it until five, but oftentimes I'm starting to look at, you know, information by five. That's Electrive. It's a newsletter out of Europe that's all about electric vehicles, 10 or 15 stories a day. And then, you know, the Green Tech Media feed comes in, the Bloomberg feed comes in. I have 22 newsletters that I read on a pretty much a daily basis. And one day I try to figure out how many headlines I scan in a day. I know it's north of 200, but I don't know how many. Wow. Do you get that all in email or do you use Feedly or some other service? All emails. Okay. But I know what they are now, right? And sometimes people say, can you give me your curated list? I have a spreadsheet of every single one with the URL and why I like them. And oftentimes when I'll do one of my workshops, I'll say, here's what I have for you if you want it. Um, Because it's to me all about creating this learning community. Then a lot of those things will refer to a report from Berkeley Labs or NREL or someplace. So then I'll go into those. Once I see the graphs or something that comes from America Wind Energy, so I save the URLs of the reports that I think I'm going to need at some point or the articles. Just in a spreadsheet, an SEO, you know, search engine optimization for myself, when I found it, what it was about, a couple keywords, the URL, the date it was published, and when I found it. So then I can search in my own spreadsheet. Then all my slides that I see, I clip them and I put them in solar, wind, California, you know, ERCOT, like I have maybe 15 different slide categories and I clip the slides and save the URL at the bottom. So if someone says to me tomorrow, Pete, I need a keynote by Friday on this. I'm like, not a problem because I know what's in my pantry. I can grab the milk, the sugar, the flour, the eggs, and maybe a little bit of cinnamon and bam, I've got what you need. These are the images, the graphs and things. Yeah. You say they're your slides. Yep. Yep. Because they're graphic representations of a thing that you want to explain. Yep. A growth rate or a change in technology or some kind of a trend. And you save those in a slide in a folder. I'm just trying to. Yeah. My, so I have a PowerPoint for solar and I date, uh-huh. I always keep two, you know, let's say 722 is today. And then I have one from like three months ago. And then once I've added a, new, a bunch of new stuff, I add a new date and I get rid of the old one. So I'm not clustering or cluttering too much. And then I know if I've got to do something on long duration storage, I go over into this file. If I need something over here, I pull it over. So it's, it's all there and I know where it is. You've explained a bit about your organizational system, but one of the things that you haven't done in the eight years as a Forbes writer and an interviewer and, and an extraordinaire of, uh, of conveying thought in our industry is actually package this all in a container that someone could purchase from you. But I understand you're in the process of this very, right, this very thing right now. Could you explain a little bit more about, about what you're working on and where, how folks can learn more about it? Sure. So there's actually two things. One, I'm trying to figure out an educational program, but I haven't launched that yet, which would be like classes for X number of people on specific topics where they could just ask questions. And I love it when people are like, what about this? What about this? What about this? All day long, right? And then the other thing I'm working on, I got this contract. <laughs> I'm cursed with this contract that I signed in January with Prometheus Press to write a 350-page book on the transformation of the power industry. And the, the manuscript is due mid-August. I'm 78% of the way through by, in terms of word count. I got 85,000 words I got to give these folks. And I was originally pre-COVID going to be going to Cherbourg, France, to GE's LM Wind Facility to watch when they glue together the two halves. Oh, yeah. You know, of the clamshell mold wind blade, 107 meter blade. They were going to schedule my visit for when that was going to happen. And I was going to go visit a Texas rancher and walk the land and see why you put the turbines in. And, you know, I was hoping to create these stories as on-ramps into each chapter explaining a certain aspect of the industry. So the cool thing about that is, you know, I took a Zoom tour of this guy who's um, created this really cool wireless charging technology for EVs. So I'm visiting his mother's garage in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And he's in his, he's showing me around the garage with his phone and I'm watching on Zoom. Then he gets in the car and he shows me what's happening on the dashboard and the app and drives the car and do, 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 right over the dot where the pad is for the wireless charging. And so like, so then I had to make COVID a, ch- a character in the book oh, that's awesome. to explain why the whole narrative had it and the process of interrogation had to change, right? But it's still all about creating on-ramps in every chapter. The guy in Texas who buys his electricity in real time and faces $9 a kilowatt hour charges, what does he do one day? Or how do you completely destroy a solar panel uh, to see what it would do in 20 or 30 years in the field? Or how do you break a wind blade, you know? 
over the course of six months. Because I'm trying to excite that curiosity in the reader. And at the end of the day, there's half a million professionals in this space, each one of us who's in a vertical. We're subject matter experts in something. We don't have time to pop up out of our prairie dog hole and survey the horizon. I want to do that. Even though by the time the book's written, half the facts in there will be obsolete. Doesn't matter. All the trends keep going and accelerate. And I, this is just a snapshot of a transformation that is happening globally. And it's my best effort to see if I can stitch that together and create a cohesive story out of it. Well, I'm super excited to see this book come to life. And as we are publishing here, you will have already submitted this manuscript and be uh, now with one weight off your shoulders and another um, to build, which is the, the LMS and the way that you bring all of this to life uh, sort of as an exiteration. How can folks learn more about you? Do you show up most on Twitter, on LinkedIn? Where can they find you? How can they connect with you? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I tweet almost every day and my Twitter handle is P, just the letter, and then K-A-Y-D-E-E, so P-K-D. So for example, I usually fire off a tweet storm a la somebody we know, seven or eight o'clock in the morning because I read through all my emails, then find the critical stories that have come in at that point, identify them, and then fire off the link, you know, and then why it matters. Some stupid commentary, sometimes a joke, whatever. Try and keep it a little bit light. And then on LinkedIn, every once in a while, I'll post a critical story. But then on every Tuesday, if all goes well, I will post a roughly four to five minute video on the four stories of the prior week that I think were most important and some commentary around those. So super rapid fire, again, a little bit goofy sometimes just to make this stuff accessible and digestible understanding. Most people don't have time to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. And that's what I do for a living. I love it. Yeah. And for those who, who didn't capture that PK, P-K-A-Y-D-E-E, uh, I can tell you, PKD's uh, Twitter feed is one not to miss if you are looking for information about the industry. And his weekly summaries are, are uh, as well, something that is really fascinating look inside uh, sort of the way an insider thinks about and sees the industry. PKD, before I let you go, I often like to ask if there's something we can give the audience. And knowing that our audience is going to be going back to me and saying, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. He has a whole URL spreadsheet of all the newsletters. Can we get that? Is that something that we could package yep. up for the Suncast Yeah, yeah we could definitely do that. Yes, we could. Fantastic. So stay tuned in the outro and you will learn how you can Get your hands on that uh, from Peter and we'll for sure, as always, have ways that you can connect with Peter over on the show notes page of mysuncast.com. Let's end today with a bold prediction. As always, I'm sure that many are anxious to hear your thoughts here. What one thing, if it's only one, do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Yeah, well, first, there was one last thing I wanted to give people. That's hope because 10 years ago, we didn't have the tools available to solve the problem. Climate change, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I'd be like, there's going to be an awful lot of sacrifice involved. But now we're going to have our cake and probably get a good chance to eat it too, because the costs are falling so fast and the business models are evolving and the synergies are taking place really, really quickly. I think the big thing next I see on the horizon that just became obvious to me in the last six months is that hydrogen is going to play a huge role in our economy. Clean, green hydrogen within a decade. It's going to be huge. And the cost of electrolyzers that separate water into H2 and O is coming down. IHS Market just published two days ago a study that said it's going to be cost competitive within 10 years, which is the most optimistic forecast I've seen. So take dirt-free renewable energy, Add that to the electrolyzers coming down. And then, yes, we have to figure out the ecosystem for transportation and so on. But I'm seeing that thing accelerate a lot faster. There's almost not a day goes by now that someone's not announcing a big project in hydrogen, a $60 million investment, a billion dollar investment, whatever. So that's a space to keep your eye on because it's coming. I completely agree. I'm glad you brought that up. And there are major manufacturers now coming out with containerized and scalable solutions to deploy hydrogen on site for renewable energy sites. Uh, I think it's something that's going to be fascinating to follow. We're going to have to add hydrogen as well back into the repertoire here on Suncast as we do cover leaders in clean energy, not just solar. PKD, it is such an honor to have you on the show. I look forward to the feedback from folks. Look forward to the book 
coming out in uh, the spring of next year. And uh, we're going to have to jump on and do some more collaboration together on LinkedIn. Look forward to doing that as well. Yeah, I look forward to it as well. It was, and I knew it would be a real pleasure having the conversation with you, Nico. Hey, hey, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did that conversation with PKD was, as I promised, so wide ranging. I asked a bunch of new questions. In fact, things that I had not uh, brought up to guests in the past, uh, like what is inevitable and what's not. I love all the book recommendations from PKD. I hope that you'll check those out as well. And of course, you'll want to go and follow Peter Kelly Detweiler on LinkedIn, which we'll link to in the show notes so that you can be up to speed on not only all of his fantastic videos, but when his book, as we mentioned, comes out, you want to be able to subscribe to that. So please go check out PKD. And and also speaking of subscribing, would you please do us a favor since you're right there in your podcast app, go ahead and give a like Uh, whichever podcast app you're using and subscribe to the show so that you get every episode as it comes out. And if you would give us a rating and review, it really helps others discover the show and we'd be ever, ever so grateful for that. As I mentioned, if you're eager to keep learning, well, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this discussion and every other discussion at Suncast, along with social media links, book recommendations, and so much more at mysuncast.com. You'll find the link to today's episode and all of our back catalog of nearly 300 episodes now. Hope that you'll check it out. And I hope that you'll tune in next week to our Clean Energy Career Summit. We also have some exciting interviews with my friend Tom Tanzi from Sunspec and solar entrepreneur Eric Peterman from GRNE Solar. Please stay tuned to catch those again next week right here as we always do every Tuesday and Thursday on Suncast. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.